rest of us are going to look a little closer at Second Chronicles. Love being back in the Old Testament again. Second Chronicles chapter 30, and you can kind of remain there uh, during the sermon. We aren't going to stray far from that. And uh, we'll begin looking around at verse 1. We aren't going to go verse by verse through this as we normally do because it's such a large portion of text. But uh, we will uh, draw some points out of this for sure. First and Second Chronicles, if you're not familiar, were partially written to document and preserve the history of the Jewish people in the southern kingdom, that is Judah. Uh, when Judah was exiled in the Babylonian captivity, they were taken into Babylon. Uh, Chronicles was a mechanism for them to understand where they were. When they went back into the land, they were able to look at Chronicles, the history of Judah, the history of the, the temple worship. Uh, they got to see where they turned wrong, away from the Lord. And uh, Chronicles was special to, to direct them back to where they were supposed to be. They were able to see the bad and the good. Um, it would have been especially useful to Judah. Um, explains why Israel was exiled to Assyria as well. That's the northern ten kingdoms. And uh, most of all, it gives us today, this, this chapter 30 gives us an idea of what appropriate godly worship should look like. And uh, we find in Second Chronicles chapter 30 that a new king now has, has arisen in Israel, in Judah. Uh, he's a godly king. His desire is to reunite the 12 tribes into worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh. And uh, this occurs right about 725 years before Christ was born. 725 years B.C., before Christ, and uh, then about 200 years after the kingdom was divided. You know, after Solomon was king, uh, the, the, uh, after his reign, the kingdom was divided uh, by Rehoboam and, and Jeroboam. Uh, so it's been 200 years now when we're looking at this text since the 12 tribes have worshipped together at the temple. The northern kingdom of Israel is ten tribes, as I had said. Their center of worship was Samaria. Their, their capital was Samaria. And the southern kingdom, known as Judah, which consisted of the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, uh, their center of worship was the temple at Jerusalem. And both kingdoms had broadly apostatized, broadly left uh, biblical worship, and began worshiping forward, foreign gods. They had uh, erected idolatrous uh, paraphernalia, altars in their, their lands, throughout the lands. And idolatry had become so bad that uh, the previous king of Judah, Ahaz, if you're familiar with that name, he had shut down temple worship completely, basically had closed the doors. What the temple was being used for uh, right previous to Hezekiah, the king we're going to see today, was storage. It was a U-Haul facility. They would keep stuff in it. Even idolatrous altars and, and, and instruments for burning incense. It's for storing the king's junk. So there was no genuine temple worship going on at this time. And, and the scene is, is even worse in Israel. Because they'd failed to repent of their idolatry. And, and God had already dispatched a king of Assyria called Tilgath-Pileser. 
and he conquered the northern tribes. And most of those northern tribes, those ten tribes, have been carried off uh, into exile, into captivity, into Assyria. Most to never be heard from again. To never be heard from again. And uh, uh, at this very time, probably at the very time this is going on with King Hezekiah, another Assyrian king, Shalmaneser V, uh, is laying siege on Samaria, the capital. So their capital, their, their center of worship is being uh, attacked, being besieged. It will fall. And the remains of what are left, the people that are left, are just kind of scattered throughout the land of Israel. Those who didn't get carried off into captivity, they're just kind of trying to make a life of it, dispersed throughout the ten northern tribes. And um, in Judah now arises King Hezekiah. And uh, he's a godly king. He's aware that the tribes have been judged due to sin. He knows that. So he's aware of the problems, and he wants to restore the God-ordained worship that was supposed to be occurring at the temple in Jerusalem. There's supposed to be sacrifices and, and, and worship of Yahweh. So he orders the priests to cleanse and repair the temple and get it ready for Passover. This is likely the first Passover in King Hezekiah's reign. And you may recall that, that Passover and, and the subsequent Feast of Unleavened Bread that immediately follows that, it was a mandatory feast. All males had to attend. And, and, and most, most you, you had to attend, uh, you had to show up with the sacrifice. You couldn't show up empty-handed, essentially. And, and the Passover commemorated how Egypt, while they were in Egypt, Israel, the, the angel of death had passed over them, remember? Passover was, was commemorating, celebrating that because of the blood on the doorposts, the lamb's blood that had been spread, the angel of death passed them over and provided an immediate exodus out of Egypt and then open the door into crossing the Red Sea and going into the Promised Land, remember? The Passover is an image or a shadow of deliverance from bondage that would be experienced through the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That is Jesus Christ. And Colossians says about these Jewish feasts and festivals that they were a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, this was prescribed in, in Exodus chapter 23. It, it was a period of seven days immediately following the 24-hour Passover. And for seven days, Israel would celebrate with a great big giant barbecue. They'd have all the foods laid out, uh, and it would be centered on on a special baked bread called matzah. It's unleavened bread. And according to, to the Hebrew sources, matzah, the word matzah means to suck out of, to suck on, and, and with a sense that you're really greedily, greedily devouring something for its sweetness. So people would suck on this matzah because it's pre- prepared in a way that not only would be flat and dense because it's unleavened, but it was also sweet to the taste. So this was the celebration of unleavened bread. A big old barbecue with matzah. Of course, we know uh, in the Bible that leaven, which permeates and rises, right? 
Uh, Leaven is often equated to sin, which permeates and spreads through the entire lump and rises. It surfaces, right? And as Christians, we understand that the significance of the Passover is that death passes, passes us over because of the blood of the Lamb, that we are delivered from bondage, and the seven-day feast of unleavened bread signifies the ongoing joy and sweetness and celebration of a life that's been purged from sin. Sin has been taken away. So, you tell me, who wouldn't want to be a part of this? Right? Well, apparently, a whole lot of people, as King Hezekiah finds out, wouldn't want to be a part of this. He sets out to become what we observed last weekend in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He wants to be a minister of reconciliation. Remember that? And he wants to invite all the people, not only from Judah where he's reigning, but all of those dispersed people up in Israel, he wants to invite them to the temple for worship. He wants them to return to God. And, And as the center of biblical worship is today the cross... Back then, the center of worship was the temple in Jerusalem. So as a minister, an ambassador of reconciliation, as that, King Hezekiah puts out the call. He puts out the call not only to his own kingdom of Judah, he puts out the call to the ten tribes in Israel, the northern kingdom. This is his call. He says, come to Jerusalem, join the feast. Join the feast and celebration. Let us come together and celebrate and and worship Yahweh at the temple the way the Scripture commands us to do so. And it hadn't been done for 200 years. So look with me as we pick up the narrative here. 2 Corinthians chapter 30, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says that now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. The king of Judah is providing an open invitation to everybody. The king of Judah. Hezekiah, he even delayed the start of Passover, we can find in here, by a month to make it easier for people who are distant to come. He's going to delay it by a month so that more people can come. And and the invitation is broad. Everybody gets invited. Verse 5 says, Verse 5 says, So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not celebrated it in great numbers as it was prescribed. So Beersheba, that was the southernmost city in Judah. Dan is the northernmost city in Israel. And and the, the decree went out to all of them. And the Passover had not been celebrated in great numbers as it had been prescribed to be celebrated. Um, God really had designed Passover to be all families, everyone involved, at least the males of every household, everybody comes together to worship. But since the death of Solomon, the kingdom had been divided. And so there had not been great numbers at the temple over Passover for 200 years. 
There hadn't been great numbers. So notice this. That people's sin will prevent them from worshiping God in the way that the Bible has prescribed them to do it. They will let sin stand between them and worshiping God in how God asked to be worshipped. Yet we uh, will see with this promise that, that goes out that God gives multiple offers. God will give to those who will repent and turn from their sin and turn to God. Uh, there's actually an assurance of a really great restoration. If people will do that, there will be a great restoration if they'll turn from their sins, return to the Lord, they'll see their families healed. For Israel, there's even a promise, the ten tribes now, there's even a promise, Hezekiah tells them, that if they will obey God, their family members who had been carried off to Assyria, their sons, their brothers, They will find favor with that king and they will be returned if Israel will return to the Lord. Come to the temple and worship as God has showed you. Look at verse 8. Hezekiah in the decree says, Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive. That is Assyria. And will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you will return to him. Look at that promise. This is a no-brainer. I mean... I simply turn from my sin, return to the Lord. That's a picture of repentance. And God promises that my brothers will be restored to me, that my sons will be restored to me. You mean my whole family can be restored? We're talking about your own children here, folks. Here it was, even their sons... If, if they would hear the king's decree, and, and it's, they'd surely say, you know, I love my children. I love my brothers. Even the one who stole my prom date back in high school. Right? They would say, I love my family. Sure, we have relational troubles. Every family does, but they'd be telling, uh, telling themselves that this is a chance for them all to return to Yahweh, to be reconciled together. And you and I know the result of this. Nobody would turn this down. Nobody would turn down having this type of reconciliation by returning to God. So we turn to verse 10. So the couriers, you and I resemble the couriers, by the way, because we have the good news of reconciliation. We resemble this. But the couriers passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, And they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Hezekiah, who was king in Israel, a type of Christ, by the way, a righteous king, a reconciling king, a good king, a predecessor to Christ, the throne, the Davidic throne. Hezekiah the king sends his couriers far and wide 
with the blessed word of reconciliation. And the king's couriers were mocked and scorned and rejected. Mission fails. No. Mission does not fail. Because there was a remnant beyond the land of Judah into those tribes that was dispersed. There, there was a small number outside the holy city of Jerusalem. These were people isolated from the temple sacrifice, from the way it's supposed to be done. And they said to themselves, you know what? I need that. I need to be reconciled to God. I want to see restoration, not only of myself to God, but of my family together. And there was a remnant that sought out reconciliation and obeyed. Verse 11 says, Nevertheless, meaning though they were mocked and scorned, most, most mocked the, the messengers, Nevertheless, some men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah and gave, and to give them one heart to do what the king and the, and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is always the authority. So, so now you've got some of the people coming. And they're starting to see some big numbers in Jerusalem. Large numbers gathering to prepare for the Passover. And, and, and the feast uh, was to follow, follow immediately after. And their first concern, their first concern is to finish purging that which was unclean. These people who were coming, the priests, the Levites, and the people coming to Jerusalem, they wanted to purge whatever was left of what was unclean. And in the next few verses, uh, you would see reading through them that, that they demonstrate a changed heart, these people that came. Uh, and, and, and you'll notice how they finished removing the altars of incense, and they cast them, these are the false altars now, and they cast them into the brook Kidron. They did that so they'd be out of sight. They didn't want anything in the line of sight that would have offended God or caused others to sin. And the Passover went on. The Passover went on. The priests and the Levites, they offered the burnt sacrifices. They, they, they sprinkled the, the blood as the law was required. Worship is back to and restored to what it was supposed to be. There is worship at the temple. So everyone there, everything that's going on, everyone has at least an outward display, an outward demonstration of biblical worship. Everyone looks like they're doing what they're supposed to do in Jerusalem. They'd agreed to come to the house of the Lord and they were physically participating in the ceremony. They'd come that far. But not everyone was spiritually participating in the ceremony at the temple. Some were attending church. I mean, they were coming to the temple. Church isn't a temple. But people were assembling to come to the temple. But they apparently were just going through the motions. They were just going through the motions. Because look with me at verse 18. It says, For a multitude of the people... Even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, they had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. So there are some that came. They came that far, 
But they say, we're not going to do this the way God prescribes me to do it. We're just going to do the outward motion so it looks like we're doing what everybody else is doing, right? We can observe three groups here in chapter 30. They're not just two anymore. You have those outside the assembly. They don't bother to come at all. They'll just scorn it, mock it. They don't want anything to do with it. Then you have those who come to the assembly and they consecrate themselves. That means they get themselves ready. They purge sin from their life. They, they remove their old way of living. They don't want that to be uh, in the line of sight. They want to cleanse their lives uh, and, and, and purify their deeds before they worship. So you got that group. In fact, we still have that today. You are to pur- purify yourself when coming before the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, Therefore I want the men in every place to lift up holy hands. Right? Lift up holy hands without wrath and without dissension. And we're going to learn in our pastoral epistle when we begin that after the first of the year, that this lifting up holy hands, it, it doesn't actually mean, you know, to shake your hands or, or, or it doesn't mean any type of particular posture that you're going to assume lifting up the holy hands. You're, you're free to lift up your holy hands and worship and praise if you so like. But that's not what Timothy is talking about. The term holy hands means consecrated, unstained hands. Holy. Lift up unstained hands. So when we come into the assembly, we are to come with unstained hands. We are to raise them to the Lord, and He is able to see that our hands are not stained from what we've been dealing with during the week. So the call there is when we come to the assemble of uh, the assembly is to come with hands that are clean, that they're unstained. You're lifting up before the Lord, I've got holy hands. I haven't been where I'm not supposed to be. My fingers haven't been on a computer keyboard where they're not supposed to be. They haven't been in the books I'm not supposed to be in. You're to come before the Lord with holy unstained hands. If they do get stained, which they do, right? From time to time, you are to cleanse, you are to purge before coming in and worship the Lord. And then you'll be able to worship with joy because you've confessed your sins before God and you've been restored. So uh, there's, there's those who have the holy hands, there's those who don't come at all, and then there's those who come and they just go through the motions. We've got three different groups. So you can't tell me the Bible isn't relevant today. It's speaking right to us today. Uh, it's written to a different group of believers. That means Israel. They had, they had a different um, economy they lived under. as a different prescription for approaching God. Sometimes we call that a dispensation. But it was still through faith. They were still approaching God through faith in what He had commanded them to do. And this book is just as relevant today as it was 2,700 years ago when it was going on. When this stuff was going on. You know, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce both the, both the joints and marrow, even penetrate to the heart. That's what this living Word does. And today we see this, this, this godly leader, this godly king, Hezekiah. And though everybody didn't prepare themselves rightly, some had not forsaken or cleansed themselves or even worried about it apparently they just came to the feast but this godly king he wants to see everyone involved 
He wants to see everyone together. He wants everybody to be able to participate in the joy of worship, in the sacrifice of the Passover for that week-long feast. The king wants everybody in there. He's a good king. So at the end of verse 18, we discover that Hezekiah, he takes drastic action. Drastic intervention here for the people. Look at what he does in the second half of verse 18. For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everybody who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. Hezekiah prays not for strict enforcement of the law here. Not according to the rules. There's not time. Passover has already happened. Uh, It's too late for that. The feast is about to begin. And, And he lifts his voice to God, and essentially he asks him to suspend the rule of the law and for God to intervene with grace, with mercy. That's what the godly king prays for. Intervene with mercy, not as prescribed by the law, by the temple rules. I'm not sure if God had caused some of these people to fall physically ill because they had eaten the Passover uh, uh, in in an impure way. Uh, That's my suspicion. It was physical illness. People were getting sick from eating the Passover wrong, especially after being 200 years. God's taking this serious, right? And they're coming in, they're eating it wrong, they're probably getting sick. How does that, how does that stand going into a seven-day feast after you've just gotten ill? Not looking so good, is it? It could be uh, that this is talking a lot about healing their hearts and changing their attitudes. That's very possible that they'd have the right attitude for worship and have that spiritual healing as well. Maybe both, huh? Maybe both. But regardless, look at God's answer to Hezekiah's plea. Verse 20 says, So the Lord heard Hezekiah, and he healed the people. Isn't that wonderful? Grace is so much better than law, isn't it? Grace is so much better than law. When we look at the role of Pastor Elder again early next year, I'm getting very excited for Timothy, and I've been reading it so much, as you can tell, just kind of flowing over as my my mind's going to Timothy, and and of course, worship, corporate worship. Timothy's... uh, We'll talk a lot about the pastoral epistles. We'll talk a lot about how worship is done, uh, how the church is administrated, and other things. So it, it just, I, I see these things and it kind of pours out. But we're going to see after the first of the year that, that two of the primary functions of the pastor shepherd, pastor elder, two primary functions are prayer and the ministry of the word. Two primary functions. We'll see that clearly when we get to it. If you can get those down, at least commit to those. The rest of the things have the way to work themselves out. You pray through the problems. You minister the word. That means you proclaim the word. You disciple in the word. You preach the word. You minister. You serve in the word. You commit yourself to that. Those are two of the roles here, and that's what Hezekiah is taking. And spiritual leadership prays. I also want to reassure you, Gerald and I meet early Tuesday mornings to pray pastorally for spiritual concerns of the church. Evangelism outreach, interceding for sin. Yes, we have people ask us to help them conquer their sins, and we pray for that. We pray for uh, sound teaching. We pray for new converts. We pray for new people to come in, new talent, new, 
new parts of the body to come in and fill the role that God has provided them to fill here. We pray for laborers to be sent into the harvest. Right? We pray for wisdom and direction for the church. We all have to be a people of prayer. And, and, and we're asking God, really, we're asking God that, that He would do a mighty work, a very mighty work through Port St. Lucie Bible Church. That is what we would like to see, and we're asking Him to do it. can't be done on our own power. We need to come together and pray. And we want to see the name of Christ magnified in a big way, in a big way. So, so even uh, that greater numbers will come to worship and join the feast, that people will come here, other Bible-believing churches everywhere, that He'll use what we're doing in service to Him to drive people to the feast, to the feast. And we can see what the result of that prayer is for Hezekiah. This is what he experiences. He experiences God is worshipped because of all this. Verse 21, it says, The sons of Israel present in Jerusalem celebrated the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with great joy. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day after day with loud instruments to the Lord. Good thing we had the Weilers here today. Loud instruments. Praise to the Lord. Then Hezekiah, it says, spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good insight into the things of the Lord. So they ate for the appointed seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord God of their fathers. Not much of a better Thanksgiving text than that, huh? Praise the Lord. And when you look at, at the worship and, and the praise of these great kings that we learn about in the Old Testament, you know, most kind of idolatrous but there were some that rose to the top you've got king david he was a good king solomon had his troubles but he was he raised the temple he was a mighty king you've got hezekiah here the reforms under hezekiah that was a big deal he was a great king a good king and um they praised god for his greatness they praised god with, with great joy and thanksgiving and and they they included many loud instruments with what they were doing. They, they worshipped with Psalm 150 style. Loud, resounding cymbals, clanging cymbals. They used things like tambourines we see when we read through Kings and, and Samuel. And, and they had harps, they had stringed instruments. We had all those today too. Praise the Lord. They had pipes, shouting and dancing. It says trumpets, cymbals, loud, resounding cymbals because they knew their God is great. They wanted to draw attention to His greatness is why they did all this. In fact, everything was so great. Their joy in Jerusalem. We didn't read through this in the Scripture reading. Let's keep reading. The joy was so great of what was going on at the temple. Look what they decided to do. They just kept on feasting. Verse 23 then the whole assembly decided to celebrate the feast another seven days. So they celebrated the seven days with joy. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, had contributed to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. And the princes had contributed to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And a large number of priests consecrated themselves. All the assembly of Judah rejoiced with the priests and the Levites and all the assembly that had come from Israel, both the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, 
along with those living in Judah. So this is big. You've got everybody in now celebrating for 14 days, double. And it continues, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Then the Levitical priests arose and blessed the people. It says, And their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Is that awesome? These people were not ashamed to praise God for what God had had done for them. They weren't boasting in themselves. There is no boasting in yourself. They were boasting in how awesome their God was and what He had done. Paul said in Galatians, "May May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And you and I know that, that, that we receive everything for, by grace. We don't earn anything. Everything is gratis. We don't boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, right? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So no one boasts except in the cross of Christ. There's no boasting in us. But God does expect to be acknowledged and praised when he does some great things. He's expecting it. When he's done well, and I got to admit, we've done some, we've seen him do some mighty things. Have we not? Has God not done some mighty things in this past year we're giving thanks for during this holiday season? We, we had 11 people baptized just here in the last three months. Praise Jesus for that. Um, God essentially this year renovated our entire facility. I'm going to praise God for that. Bathroom still needs some work. Overall, God has blessed us. Um, Giving has far exceeded whatever the budgets were in the past. We have a, a debt elimination program going right now. We've had people give personal items, some uh, uh, quite expensive personal items like a motorcycle and boat to get rid of the debt. God is doing some wonderful things. We need to praise Him. We've seen gifts offered in abundance. People's time, people's labor they've been giving, people's generosity. We're blessed to bring Pastor Weiler on full time this year. That happened this year. Now he's been accepted into seminary this year. These are some wonderful things that we need to praise God for. We've, had, we've witnessed a number of very spiritually energetic families coming into the church. A number of them wanting to join. There's one family that I'm aware of that was out on Thursday and handed out over 500 gospel tracts at the mall Thursday evening. That's awesome stuff, isn't it? Just wants me to get out there. Get out there and go. Other people that encourage you and want you to push further, push beyond what you're used to, get out of your comfort zone and do more than you thought you might in the past. Isn't that what we need to do to one another? It's awesome stuff, awesome stuff. We've seen a number of people come to faith, both through the youth ministries of VBS and Awana and outreach in the park when we were going out in the park to share. Uh, I'm going to praise Jesus Christ for this. He's done some wonderful things. How dare we not praise God and lift His name on high? How do we dare not 
not godly to just shut our mouths when we see God is working. Scripture says, that's actually Psalm 150 again, let everything that, everyone that has breath praise the Lord. Everything that has breath praise the Lord. Um, he has blessed us with a spiritual harvest and a feast. We ought to clang the cymbals. Do y'all have cl- cymbals in the RV? No cymbals. Just checking. But uh, we don't know what next year holds. We don't. We're, you can't be presumptive. You never know. It might bring financial ruin for some of us or all of us. Who knows? For our faith, we might land in prison next year. There's no way to know. But that didn't stop Paul and Silas from giving praise to the Lord when they were singing their hymns of praise, right? Even prison didn't stop them from praising the Lord. So it doesn't matter if you don't know what's coming. You've got to praise God for what you have, and that's what we're doing this Thanksgiving season. We're just going to keep on telling people, come on, join the feast. Come in and join the feast. And uh, you might be relatively new here today. Maybe you're just visiting. Um, you might be one of those who had scorned the invitation for years, maybe decades. Just said, you know what, I don't need that invitation. You might have just stumbled in today even. And uh, you might not understand what the celebrating is all about. What is, what's this all about? You might not realize, actually, that your sin and disobedience has separated you from God. Completely separates you from God. You're under God's judgment. If your sin and have not been reconciled, you are under God's judgment. And, and yet God is so righteous in wanting to see people reconciled, to be brought into the faith, God so badly wants to see you at the feast that He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect, sinless life. Perfection. The Son of God lived a life you can't live, and He willingly put Himself in harm's way. He allowed Himself to be tortured for yours and my sin. He allowed Himself to be nailed to a cross and die for your sin. He paid the debt you couldn't pay. And, and I don't care how rich you are. You can't buy your way out of this. If you sin before a holy God, He doesn't need your money, all right? doesn't need any of our monies. Our opportunities to give to Him are our privilege. But you can't buy your way out of this. Um, you don't have enough time to work it off. You can't work off this debt. You've committed way too many sins by now. Trust me, you can't work your way back out of it. Your body isn't going to allow you to do that. But God's Son, Jesus Christ stepped in for you. He stepped in and did what you can't do. He is the substitute. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took the punishment and death that you and I deserve so that we could be reconciled to God. He was a minister of reconciliation too. Hezekiah is a minister of reconciliation. We're ministers of reconciliation. That's what we do. Scripture says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is what God has done. He's brought you to the point of reconciliation. 
Christ had victory over the grave. He was seen by the apostles and on one occasion by over 500 people at one time. Proven everything is so. There is an empty grave, folks. Christ is alive. He has been raised. And forgiveness is there for the taken. You need to receive Jesus Christ. You need to make that decision today to say, I'm going to receive him and make him my Savior. He gladly wants to see you reconciled. He loves you. Perhaps there's some that are joining the feast. They're coming to the feast. Might even be saved. Been taking part. But perhaps you're still on the sidelines. Hadn't been doing it the way that God wants you to do it or had way, not the way it had been prescribed. You might be here, you might be saved, but you're like, I'm just not going to take part in things the way that things are supposed to be taken part of. I'm going to come and I'm just going to kind of do things my own way. Maybe sit on the sidelines, maybe not get involved. No excitement going on. Maybe even annoyed that other people are excited about what's going on. It happens. It happens to the best of us. If that is you, you too need to be reconciled. That's sin. You need forgiveness for that as well. Everybody needs to come into the feast and celebrate Jesus Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation before God. In the meantime, the rest of us here, we're going to celebrate. We're going to feast. We're going to rejoice. We are going to praise the holy name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy to come in and, and, to, and Lord, to, to be prompted to worship through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Lord. To uh, raise high the name of Jesus Christ, to sing loud in praise, to praise your holy name, Lord God. And, and to celebrate all that you've done for us, that, that the blood has now delivered us from death. That, Lord, you've passed over our sins, Lord God, so we raise our voices high to you. Lord, we're so grateful. We pray for everyone here that each one would be saved, would understand that Christ is the Savior of the world. Lord, we pray that you would do that work on anyone here that, that has not been saved, Lord, that you would redeem every one of us. Because like Hezekiah, we want to see everyone worshiping, everyone celebrating and joy, Lord God, and enjoying a bountiful feast and harvest. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for what you've done here for us. Thank you for having the Weilers with us today. Lord, we pray for those who weren't able to come today due to sickness, ailments, Lord, pain, loneliness, Lord. We pray that you would be with them this wonderful Thanksgiving season and help us to know how to serve them and reach out to them as well, Lord, uh, as we look now towards Christmas. Lord, thank you for everything that you've done for us, and we, and we thank you for it in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.